Okay, hello everybody. Um, welcome to another episode of Borderline presented by yours truly. Um, the these past few weeks have been um terrible <laughs> to say the least, and it's been taking me ages trying to um, make this episode happen. Um, and I just have to apologize at how terrible I've been with my uploading schedule. Um, although I promised that I was going to be a lot more, um, punctual with it, but such is life. (laughs) Um, I'm quite upset because this episode was supposed to be, um, one that was recorded with a guest and it was going to be my first guest, um, my friend Abigail Anatikai, and she has her own podcast on Spotify as well. Um, it's called Unlearning. It's a social political podcast, and I think you should give it a listen. It's called Unlearning. Um, but because of, obviously, we both live in different countries. She lives in Scotland. Um, it's quite difficult to get you know, different software to work with us to not collect as much background noise and and make sure that the sound quality is good. So although the quality of what we discussed was great, it's really shitty when it comes to the sound quality and listening to it and editing it for the second time, actually, because we recorded it twice. It was just not something I wanted people to listen to because I didn't want you guys to have uh, pain in your ears it was just painful to to hear because of the lack of um consistency in the sound quality and the occasional um buzzes and stuff so yeah I think I'm just I'm gonna have to re- record this episode on my own and excuse me if I just don't sound as um bubbly and amazing as I usually am um I do hope that my sarcasm is detected there uh, because I do know I probably bring everybody down whenever I speak in every episode. Um, But I hope that whatever I say is seen as coming from a good place and that I'm just trying to speak for people who just don't want to speak at all. Um, This episode is also really special for me because it's one where I've done a lot of research It's the one I've done the most research on so far, and mainly because I'm discussing a topic um, rather than, you know, going through uh, personal experiences that I've experienced myself or seen friends or close family members or people that I've met go through. Um, So this time it's a, a bit more objective, actually a lot more objective with just my opinion um, on some of these theories and facts. So shall we start? This episode is going to be about mental illness and the long um, life discussion really that I hope ends at one point of whether mental illness exists or not. See, I specify mental illness mainly because I think a lot of people or most people know that mental health exists and if I ask somebody what do you think having healthy mind means they'll probably have a lot of answers like 
um, you know, being good to people, having a clear mind, not being angry and full of negative emotions such as sadness or angry or being irritated or being vengeful or being envious or jealous of somebody or not being abusive towards other people but rather being giving having an abundance of love to give not not lacking any intimacy issues being able to deal with your emotions and cope with them in a healthy way um i think that is what most people would say a healthy having a healthy mind is but when i ask what do you think being mentally ill means? What do you think having um, a lack or a deficiency in your mental health mean? And I think that's where people specifically in the Arab world start to become uncomfortable. And I'm talking about people in the Arab world. When I say this, I actually just mean my close family here in Egypt. Um, You know, I'm not going to try and pretend like I'm some sort of foreigner Um, but I would say that the way I think most of the time is very foreigner like in terms of um, a lot of social issues Um, I went to a school where I was practically raised by Brits and then I once I finished uh, school I went straight to the UK so I practically lived my whole life with Brits really and interacted with them mo- the most. And so even now coming back to Egypt, it's like, oh shit, I feel like I'm having a culture shock with the amount of people that almost make mental illness not feel real or uh, some aspects of mental illness that only... Um, apply to them are real and then they invalidate the rest and you're going to understand what I mean hopefully once I start getting into it um yeah and just a little background on how this whole research and the concept for this episode started I was having a conversation uh, that was started by a family family member of mine he's much older than me and he said that he noticed that I've just been unhappy for the past couple weeks. And mind you, this has happened about three weeks ago. And he said that basically, uh, you know, just a disclaimer, he wasn't saying this out of malice. I know this person and I know that he only wishes the best for me. Um, But it's just a rather a difference in mind and in personality and in perspective. So I know that he wasn't saying these things out of malice. Um, and that he was just trying to help me and give me advice. But unfortunately, that advice ended up being a whole other trigger of its own. Um, he basically said that, you know, that the mental space that I'm in is something that I'm choosing because I'm, I'm too weak to, um, gather the courage to, be happy that being happy is a goal and you have to constantly strive for it and you have to learn how to be happy and although in essence it well from the um once you you hear those words you're like yeah that makes sense um obviously a lot of people's goals is to be happy you know and happiness is not a physical thing happiness is embodied in a lot of things whether it's having a family or having a business of your own or being rich or being successful in academia or finding the cure for cancer whatever it is 
that is your own success. Uh, sorry, is your own happiness. But it's it all sounds nice and lovely, but working towards an emotional um, state of mind is not the same as working through something that's tangible. And please hear me out when I say this because this is where I get very emotional. Um, when you're working, for example, for towards grades or something, it's very easy to say, well, I did, I did this. All I have to do is just study this, study this, and study that textbook and go over through that. And I'll, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to, to be great. And most of the time you do succeed once you put in the effort. But when it's a mental state, you, you don't have a specific goal. You know, you can't measure happiness in a way. You can't quantify it. Um, you can't say someone's happier than someone else by just looking at them because it truly is how they feel. And that, to me, can never be quantified. It's difficult because a lot of the times you are working against yourself um, rather than working against external factors. When you are working to get rich, for example, um, you're working against a job, you're working against external factors, people are trying to put you down, you know, you're work, you're competing against other people to get to that promotion. When you are working towards a happy relationship, you are working with your partner, like that is also an external factor. When you're working and, you know, finding the cure for cancer, you're also working against external factors such as lack of funding or finding, an, a, you know, the, the right place to do your studies and, you know, <laughs> the issues with research. Um, whereas with happiness or a specific emotional state of mind, it's very internal. The factors that you struggle against are very internal and they, you're really working against yourself. Um, you're working against your own depression or your own anxiety, your own OCD, your own overthinking, your own stress, your own um, lack of self-esteem, lack of confidence, your own fear of failure even. Um, and it's so easy sometimes for some of us like me to put yourself down, you know, to say that, well, it feels like I'm going to be unhappy for the rest of my life because whenever I, I get happy, something bad always happens and that just seems to be a pattern. I'm just going to give up. So that was kind of why things, it really triggered me. That conversation is, it's so easy to say things like that, but actually doing them and working towards those things, those things is not the fucking same. So shall we get started? I first wanted to start by saying the, um, I am going to bring actually some of the um, Abigail's opinions that we discussed together in the, in the, in our conversations that we've had that unfortunately (laughs) did not make this. Um, We started with, do you think mental health exists? And I think we both agreed that it did. Um... But I'm just pretending that I, I'm trying to bring two sides of the argument. In my opinion, if I try to think of it like a philosopher would, you know, philosophy 101, does mental health exist? 
if the answer is yes, then then there's a possibility that such health can be affected. Um, it it really is as simple as that. I can't even um, elaborate on it. It's that kind of factual or it's very simplistic and basic to me. Um, we can is do you, there's um there's a really interesting study uh sorry um movement that's called the anti-psychiatric movement and um I'm not exactly sure when it started so I'm not going to you know even make things up when I say I don't know something I'm gonna say I don't know it because I hate passing on you know incorrect information and excuse the the shuffling of papers I'm really just not feeling well at the moment um so yeah the anti-psychiatric movement is a movement that was just basically um so the anti-psychiatric movement um was uh, some of the people that you know were leading in that field or in that movement they actually a lot of them hated the term anti-psychiatry that they were labeled as anti-psychiatry um just because you know, a lot of these people were actually psychiatrists themselves, the irony. Um, and basically, the core belief of that movement was that um, psychiatric treatment at the time, you know, in the in the 50s and in the 60s, I think that's when it originated, um, that, and, and that psychiatric treatment at the time did more harm than good, and that the relationship between a patient and the um, psychi- psychiatrist was something that was coercive and it was an unequal power relationship um, and obviously I'm going to reply to each point that I say just so I don't say a bunch of shit and then not you know um, reply to each point um, with you know my own opinion um, the I think in the 50s and the 60s, mental um, me- treatment for mental illnesses and psychiatric treatment, it was definitely not the same as it is now. Even if we say that now is shit, I feel like at that time it was probably even worse because, um, you know, we're going to start with, you know, people being called crazy if they had schizophrenia or if they were, if they, I mean, epilepsy at one point was seen as, you know, someone who needed to be exercised, you know, that they had some sort of ghost or spirit living inside of them. And, you know, later on, we discovered freaking brain scans. And now we know it's because of an imbalance of electricity in your brain. So a lot of times people get called crazy, they get told that, you know, their spirit is living in their body, that they're not well because of some weird thing and they don't recognize that these people just need help and a lot of the times it's not that they are harmful people but these people need help and because people thought like that at the time and I'm not saying that I'm justifying it I'm saying I can sort of understand because of the lack of medical and scientific evidence that was especially that one that was available to the general public um It was very easy to say, well, you have schizophrenia, you're probably crazy, you're hallucinating all the time, we're going to admit you to, um, you know, the whole asylum uh, trope and and people just being forced into these institutions. And 
you know, treated very badly, treated like they were crazy, like they had no sense of autonomy. And I think that's what, especially Thomas Saz, he was an American-Hungarian psychiatrist and he was one of the people in this movement. And that's what he said. He thought that he believed that psychiatric treatment took autonomy from the patient um, and it just kind of put it into the hands of the people treating that patient and that we do need autonomy to be able to achieve the final goal which is make the person or the patient in that sense restoring their personal sense of agency um and i can agree (laughs) to be honest with mr saz i agree with him uh to that point but obviously that now psychiatric treatment uh a lot of the time is not something that you have to do. Um, even when, if anything, I feel like there's more of negligence nowadays. Um, you know, people sometimes get admitted into hospital for suicide attempts or, you know, self-harming or for having extreme episodes of mania where they're at risk of harming themselves or even harming other people. I mean, damn and it doesn't mean that these people are crazy it just means that they're ill they're sick and they need help um so i think in a way i understand what he was talking about but things have changed and we and i can personally say that i know that there is a lot of negligence in the healthcare sector especially being someone who works in the healthcare sector myself I, as a patient, have been ignored a lot of the times when I've been severely depressed um, in a in a so-called first world country, um, you know, the UK. And I've also, as I worked there, I've also seen patients get neglected and people not caring about them by other people um, that I've seen um you know, and and as, you know, a trainee, not a trainee, but as someone who was just an assistant or something, you know, even saying we should help them, I'd have people saying, well, you know, if they wanted to, they would have helped themselves. So, you know, there is some form of negligence um, that we have now. And I think most of the time, psychiatric treatment is is a choice. Um, A lot of times now, I think we beg people to go to therapy. Um, But it's, a lot of times it's very expensive and I'm going to get to that in literally two seconds. Um, so Thomas Sass said that mental, obviously these are not direct quotes. I'm just, you know, um, paraphrasing, but that mental illness is a destructive social construct that medicalizes living. Um, so when my... Uh, understanding of something that is a social construct to me it's something that is man-made you know that we have not man-made but something that we have labeled um the closest example i can say for 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 anybody who doesn't understand what i mean by social construct a lot of people say that gender is a social construct that you know biological differences i.e sex are something that is fact it's it's biology that you know women have a vagina men have a penis but gender is a social construct and that um it's not something that is a fact and that we made it up so we can fit into these things it's it's almost like a label 
A lot of people talk about, for example, monogamy and say that it is a social construct and that naturally we should be polyamorous and there's facts of this and that. And I don't know about that, but I just hear, you know, things that go around on the Internet. And that's I'm just trying to give some examples. Um, And so Thomas Saz is kind of saying something like that, that, you know, mental illness is a destructive social construct and that it medicalizes living. Um, and that many people value security and submission over uncertainty and responsibility and responsibility. Sorry if I wasn't clear there. Um, I also agree with that second part. So I don't believe that mental illness is a social construct. I definitely believe that it exists and that it might be given a name um, I personally, as someone who was diagnosed with but borderline personality disorder, I hate that term disorder because it makes me feel like I'm not normal. Um, it makes me think that, okay, so if I have borderline personality disorder, does that mean that, you know, that the emotions that I feel are, are worse, like that, that I that I'm a deviation from the norm. Um, I know I, I can't totally um, convey what I'm thinking or how I feel, um, but please try and understand. Um, I think that the term disorder is a very heavy term, especially when you get diagnosed, you're like, okay, that makes it sound so serious. Um and honestly, when you read into it, it just sounds like things that a lot of us have. Um, maybe it's just me, but it's, you know, borderline is basically encompassed in nine main symptoms, that the core nine symptoms, which is having very intense emotions, having um, random spurts of just being angry or irritated, um, and just not knowing the reason why that you can be easily irritated, you know, that, you know, that your perception of things changes dramatically, that you have a lack of identity, you kind of don't know who you are having, um, you know, engaging in unhealthy activities such as like spending a lot of money or binge eating. I definitely had that binge eating thing. Um, I know I don't talk about it much, but I have had, um, suffer I hate that word suffer but I've I've had have had bulimia um you know it's all those kind of symptoms and you can say oh I think I've had intense anger before I think I've had really um intense emotions before I, I think I can relate to this and that's what I mean I think that the terms themselves can sound very scary and very like oh you you have a disorder you're that's crazy but you actually read into those things and you're like okay I can kind of understand why that would happen um so yeah I guess that the social construct is almost like the the names we give to things in my opinion but I don't think that you know emotions are emotions you can't say that happiness is a social construct. You can say what people think of happiness and their definition of happiness is a social construct. But to me, having feelings is real. It's not something that is man-made. Nobody, 
invented anger nobody invented happiness we just put words on it we it's like love for example nobody really really knows what love is nobody can really have a specific definition a tangible quantifiable one of what love is but we feel it we feel like we're in love with somebody we feel like we love other people and everyone in every society actually in every culture in its own has a different definition of it so I think that the social construct is pretty much, in my opinion, is the labels and the terms we put onto things, but the actual feelings, I don't care if you go and call depression anything you want to call it. If you call borderline whatever you want to call it, all I know is I feel those emotions. And in a way, sometimes if if you know if if scientists are able to say that these emotions are heavily related and some people and put a name on it so it so it be like i don't care it you know having a name for something in particular can help you because you can then start saying okay i can target this i can read more about it but it doesn't change how i feel if someone were to misdiagnose me and say okay i actually don't think you ever have borderline i was going to say oh really then i definitely don't have borderline no i'm still going to say the say 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 why am I feeling like this then I know that I feel those emotions I hope that what I'm saying makes sense that the symptoms are not a social construct the labels and the terms might be but the symptoms are very real and tangible um when he says that a lot of us value security and submission over uncertainty and responsibility Oh my God, I think that's so true, especially with what I call um, kind of snowflakey, being snowflakey about mental illness, um, which is basically putting too many labels on everything, you know, almost shifting the blame to, to put it on a disease, you know, to make it seem like, okay, I am not responsible for this. It's like saying, well, I can't focus. I don't do well in school because I have ADHD. I don't do well in, you know, it's like, for example, like if somebody was depressed and they were abusive towards me and then they say, well, I'm depressed. It's, it's natural that I'm abusive. I don't care. Being the person that gets abused, I really don't give a fuck and I don't care if whatever condition you have because... I also have emotions too and you are being abusive towards me. So obviously not not all the time does it come to the point of abuse, but it's what I'm trying to say is that a lot of us would rather have that hanger to just hang all those, have it as an excuse to hang every failure or every um, deficiency in our life on it saying that, you know, I have no friends, it's because I have depression and I'm never going to be able to do this. And I I try and compare it to, for example, having cancer. You know, having cancer, you might not be able to work. You might not be able to maybe not work as much. You might not be able to engage in as much as activity because you're so tired all the time. You might, um, if you go through chemo, for example, your hair might fall off and for example, as a woman, you might feel, you know, not confident about that and you don't want to um, be in a relationship, but then you use that as an excuse. And at the same time, I get it because you might say, well, cancer is not my fault. I didn't choose to have it. 
But at the same time, you can't stop living. You can't start hanging every single issue in your life that, granted, that illness might be responsible and accountable for it, but you have to start doing something about it. And you have to start taking action for it. When some, when you get diagnosed with cancer, a lot of the time people actually go and pursue it further and they go and get scans, they go and see several physicians and they go see what treatment options they have. I think with a lot of mental illnesses, we're just happy to just pop a pill and just call it a day. We don't want to go to therapy. We don't want to even face what what trauma happened to us or, or what are the causes of us having that we don't follow doctor's orders you know just like if if you have cancer and a doctor tells you have to quit smoking or you have to stop drinking alcohol or you have to stop eating fatty foods you have to exercise more it's the same thing if a doctor tells you well i think you should dissociate yourself from toxic people i think you should start working on your relationship with your parents and maybe that's a cause for that when you don't listen it's very likely that things are going to deteriorate and get fucked up even more so that's a point where i that i really agree with thomas sazon um despite how it kind of personally attacks me to be fair or personally attacks old mona in a way because i used to be like this i used to be like everything is depression's fault and depression is not I definitely know it's not something that I chose so there be it but if you have cancer and then it goes on to and it could have been preventable and or at least alleviated a little bit and you're just letting it progress I'm sorry but then at that point it's your fault because you had a treatment option that you are not choosing to pursue so basically what I'm trying to say is having the disease might not be your fault but letting it get worse a lot of the times was something that we could have prevented and we had the option. But I do understand that a lot sometimes we don't. <coughs> Excuse me there. Um, so another thing that he said was about that true freedom is taking control of responsibility um, taking control of and, and taking responsibility for our choices and handling their consequences. And that is true. That just truly relates to what I just said. Um, and that was kind of what he thought was the aim of psychiatric therapy. The, the true aim of psychiatric therapy is to restore the client's personal sense of agency, to have an ill patient and then you discharge them and they are fully capable of understanding their emotions, coping with them health, in a healthy way, and being responsible for their own me- mental well-being, just like you would with your physical well-being. And I agree. I definitely agree. And I love that he never said any, like he, he didn't say anything about um the chance of you being true truly healed because i think with mental illness it's not it's not something that you can just get rid of a lot of times those things are lifelong and you just have to the the true treatment is familiarizing yourself and and being more self-aware of how how you are on the inside and how to cope with um episodes if you're um 
illness is episodic in nature and just knowing where to go to when you feel those terrible feelings um, and what kind of help you should seek. Um, he also says something that I agree with. This totally sounds like I'm just totally against um, mental illness. But in my opinion, I think, <coughs> excuse me, again, is rude. Um, I think that these people that were labeled as antipsychiatric, I think I I think they did acknowledge that mental illness existed. I just think they hated the way people dealt with it. And now I feel like, as I'm discussing them, I feel like, okay, I kind of agree with a lot of things y'all are saying. Um, aside from the social construct bit, maybe that's a bit of a uh, a point that I don't really totally agree with. Um, or I just see it from a different point of view. Um, he, Thomas Saz wrote, he's a really interesting guy, to be fair, based on the research that I've done on him. And he talked about capitalism and how it works um, specifically in the psychiatric field. And oh my God, was he right? <laughs> um, <sighs> I think in the 90s, that's when um, prescriptions and the use of um, antipsychotic drugs and, and antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs and all those drugs were used like the the use the usage of those drugs kind of went at a just a massive upsurge um and there was still kind of there was just still a lack of that thing of like going to therapy because now we have a pill for it it's the same thing with um, weight loss. You know, you don't need to go to the gym and work for like months to lose that weight. Now we have a pill that makes you drop 30 pounds in, you know, a 10-day course. Um, people, we naturally want the fastest results. And we think, especially now in our culture, that just popping a pill is going to make everything better. I have a headache. Let me just pop a pill and so I can function for the rest of my life. Um and it's kind of seen as like the the let me pop a pill culture. Um, it's also, he saw it as just a big money making industry. And he wrote a book about it even. Um, he's talking about psychopharmacy. Uh, if I'm honest, I totally believe with him on that one too. I think that big pharma capitalizes on that that it really capitalizes on this and therapists in my opinion based on the ones that I've dealt with and actually that's not in the UK that's here where healthcare is private so you have to pay for it um actually here in Egypt they don't take any type of insurance therapy here does not take insurance so you have to pay a shit ton of money um, for a very small session that is very, very specifically timed, even though time seems to be, you know, a non-existent concept here in Egypt, especially when it comes to doctor's appointments. It's very rare that you'll actually go in on time. 
But with therapists here, oh my God, <laughs> a 50-minute session is a fucking 50-minute session. Um, they're very aware of their time. They charge an extortionate amount of money. And it's just, it's, it, I think going into an appointment with like a consulting with a neurosurgeon or a heart surgeon probably costs a lot less. Um, and it just feels like, especially with doctors that I've went to, um, it feels like they just want me, they really want to take their time. And a lot of times it's used as an excuse of, I really need to get to know you and what kind of character you are. But I think that they either want to describe, sorry, prescribe medication or they don't, they just want to waste time. You know, they don't work on specific plans. Their main aim is to keep you coming and coming and coming again and paying more money every single time rather than I truly want you to feel better. Um, and it really makes me angry. Um, I actually communicated with a psychiatrist here in Egypt and um, she's, she's actually not Egyptian. She's she's not Egyptian, she's American, and this woman wanted to charge 2,800 Egyptian pounds for a session, a one-hour session, you fucking kidding me, um, by the way, 2,800 Egyptian pounds is approximately around, um, 140, uh, pounds sterling, yeah, <laughs> 140 pounds sterling for an hour. Um, I thought it was pretty extortionate. Um, but I think the average therapist here takes around 600 Egyptian pounds, which is about 30 pounds sterling per session. And it's usually a 50, to, 50 minute to a one hour session. Um, and also the pills. The pills are a whole issue of their own. I know you're saying, well, okay, you are a pharmacist. Why do you or why are you against pills? I'm actually not against pills. I am pro medication, but when it's appropriately prescribed. I think um medication has worked for me in terms of my OCD, for example. Um and I know that now that I'm off my OCD medication because I'm on Accutane. Um, and I've become more anxious, I've become more irritable, I've become more depressed because my OCD medication is also an SSRI, so it it did help with my depression for a little bit as well, um, but mainly targeted my OCD. Um, so now I just find myself in an overthinking, OCD overthinking mess, um, and so I do believe that medicine works and it is very efficient but I've also been prescribed an SSRI before that totally made me more suicidal and I was never given um sorry I I'm I meant that I was I was younger at the time so I didn't really know much about it but all I knew was it felt really bad um, so I don't think that medicine is always the answer, um, especially that once I went into working in the pharmacy field and like community pharmacy and stuff, 
the stuff that we would get taught at uni was not what happened in the real world. So medications like benzodiazepines, so they are your anti-anxiety, kind of calming medications, sleep medications. Um, I remember our lecturer would tell us, well, actually, these are very prone to being abused because you can easily get addicted to how they make you feel and how calm they make you feel and you can get addicted to them. Um, and usually the course shouldn't be very long. So if they were prescribed for insomnia, maybe just give them for a, a one week to two weeks, I think it was. And then you should actually work on the actual insomnia and finding reasons what, sorry, why it's being caused um, and treat those source symptoms. And I would go into community pharmacy and I would see patients that would be on benzos for years You know, they're taking these medications consistently for years. And nobody's batting an eye. Um, So it's it's something that I just find is a it needs to to be more monitored and that doctors, um, especially in the UK, are so easy. um, It's so easy for them, sorry, to prescribe medications rather than actually deal with the issue um i'm actually gonna take that back i haven't been to the whole uk but i would say that was very um common in scotland is to just prescribe um and just refer you maybe to to somebody but there wasn't i think it was like maybe one doctor my entire time i was in scotland my gp who was two actually who were very dedicated to making me feel better and making me feel welcome to come to them anytime I don't feel well. Um, Cheers to my last GP in Scotland. Uh, God bless him. Um, Yeah, that would be kind of where I'm going in. And one thing that I did not agree with Mr. Thomas Saz about was that actually the, the quote, the information that I'm getting from here was from a paper that was written about Thomas Saz and um, the anti-psychiatric movement and I'm gonna link it uh, in the description for this episode um, there was something about physical disease and that f- the fact that physical disease or physiological diseases have are defined by being a deviation from a defined structural norm um which makes sense, you know, if you have a warped spine, that's an issue because normal human beings have a specifically um, structured spine and that is a deviation from the normal and it causes harm, yada, yada, yada. Whereas mental illness, um, there isn't exactly a norm. Uh, The norm is arbitrary and it's often defined by psychosocial and ethical factors which we know vary from culture to culture, from individual to individual. Um, And so there isn't a unified definition um, to what the norm is. Uh, For example, you know, physical disease, arthritis, how it's defined in China is probably the same as the definition of arthritis in America or in Italy or in even Egypt, you know? Whereas with depression it's very difficult to kind of 
you know, there, there's a lot of lines. And I'm sure if you're listening and you're from different cultures, you understand what I mean. Um, and he basically described that, you know, mental disease are kind of seen as problems in living. Um, rather than actual diseases, they were a, a result of the life that we are living there. You know, it's the, it's the stuff that that family member told me that it's a problem with living. Um, you know, everyone has those days, you know, when somebody tells you that everybody's having those days, everybody has those days, you just got to get through it. It's normal, you're going to be fine. Um, but the counter argument is that suffering and incapacity are fundamental attributes of disease. And that's what people who say that mental disease is not a disease forget. I remember in my second year of uni, we had a lecturer that I really admired. And he said that mental issue, mental diseases, um, they would really need us to interfere once it becomes something that affects your quality of life. Because I remember I asked him, well, what about people who have OCD or depression and they're fully capable of coping and they don't suffer and they don't want medication? And he said, well, okay. And, and I think that's very applicable with OCD especially. Um, and he says, okay, that's fine if you have OCD and it doesn't affect you. But once it starts manifesting is a lot of overthinking or... Um, starts affecting like you waste a lot of time a lot of people don't know this but like having OCD really wastes your time Um, you spend a lot of time checking making sure that things are clean making sure that you did things the right way overthinking and thinking that terrible things are gonna happen if you don't do that specific thing and I've been late to to a lot of appointments and lectures because of this in my life because I had to check the gas. I had to check the taps before I left like a thousand times. Um, and I remember that lecturer said, well, actually, once it starts affecting your quality of life, then y- y- you consider um, interfering because it's something that is affecting you. It's It's making you feel things because... OCD is not a feeling. OCD results in feelings, at least for me as a patient, um, as someone who, who has OCD. I, the, the, the compulsions and the obsessions are not a feeling. They're, they're something that happens to me, but the feelings, the resulting feelings from OCD are anxiety, are depression, are overthinking that results in anxiety, um, are... Um, relationships that get ruined between my friends with my family because I'm late to things because I can never explain why I need to check things a million times um and yeah really um so that was just a brief discussion of the anti-psychiatric movement um so let's move on to my um second part of the episode which is what are the causes of mental illness and because if mental illness exists then there must be a cause right um with that family member he basically said that the cause was that i was not i was not strong enough i wasn't working as hard enough to strive for happiness and i'm choosing to stay where i am 
I am choosing to want to remain a victim. I am choosing to be unhappy because I just want to be that way. He made it feel like it was a choice, that I wasn't doing anything, that I wasn't struggling every day to be a better person and be happier and be more cheerful. I mean, at least that's what being a better person felt like to me is to just be happier because I feel like my moods constantly affect people around me, um, usually my family. And I just wanted to be a better person for them. I wanted to be happier for them. But it's not that easy. Everyone only sees the final result. They don't see that every day you wake up and you're saying, I really want to be happy today. I really want to not not want to talk to anyone today. I really want to talk to, to my family rather than just avoid any type of interaction because I'm I'm scared I'm gonna say the wrong thing and I'm scared I'm gonna piss that person off or I'm you know I'm I'm scared I'm going to get into an argument over how I feel. Um it's a lot of issues really. Um so I sat down and I said okay in my opinion there are, these are the three possible reasons why we have mental illness, right? And I just classified them into nature, nurture, and first world problem. Um, I think that if it's nature, that's usually the biological stuff. So, um, sorry, that nature is the biological stuff. Um, does mental illness have a proven um, biological ideology, meaning does it ha- is it proven to be caused by physical factors? Yes and no. So research, <laughs> research that I've found has said that there, there definitely um, is um, a high chance that there are genetics um, that have to do specifically with like your brain and your brain structure and and the function, there are definitely um, things and, and factors that suggest um, that there is a biological cause, but there is no specific gene. And I did this research mainly on two um, conditions, or borderline and OCD. The depression episode, I might actually do it. Let me know if you want a specific episode on the causes of um, whatever disease, uh, sorry, or mental illness that you want. And I might do that. Um, but with borderline, there was no evidence of a gene, but genetics is something that people are still researching and seeing. Um, however, there has been research on both OCD and borderline that studied brain structure and function. And obviously we have tools now where we can analyze, um, brain structure and function and whether when certain parts, when you're exposed to certain uh, stimuli, what happens to um, the activity and the activity levels in certain parts of your brain. So it's kind of like when you get exposed to a certain stimuli, um, specific parts of your brain sort of light up and you can read on all these type of things. So MRI studies, brain scans, all that. Um, With brain structure and function... Um, and uh, sorry, with borderline, they found that 
Some studies said that the areas that the areas that get affected and borderline. This is just a suggested theory, by the way, that the amygdala, the hippocampus, and the orbitofrontal cortex of the brain are the areas that are most affected. So those three areas. Um, and these are the areas that control impulses and are responsible for emotional regulation. So specifically, the amygdala is responsible for regulating your emotions. I call it the heart of the brain, really. <laughs> I just call it that. Um, it's also a, a specialized... It, it, sorry, what am I trying to say? Um, it's especially responsible for regulating negative emotions. So things like anxiety, fear, and aggression. So the negative emotions that we feel, the amygdala is the one that is kind of there to regulate them. So you can only imagine when there's a disturbance to your amygdala, what the fuck goes on. <laughs> um, the hippocampus, which is the second part we said, um, is responsible for regulating behavior and for self-control. And finally, the orbitofrontal cortex is responsible for your planning and your decision-making skills. Um, some MRI studies actually in many people that were affected with borderline found out when comparing to the brains of controls that those three parts of the brain had smaller uh, were, were smaller in, in size or had unusual activity levels. Um, and there, it's just, it's suggested that the development is af- affected by early childhood. Um, th- said you know the amygdala, the hippocampus, and the orbitofrontal cortex. Their development is affected by events that happen in early childhood. With OCD, friends. <laughs> um, again, same thing. No specific gene. Um, has been identified that is responsible for OCD. So ask me for a name of a gene. There is nothing that I found. Um, But with brain imaging, they found out that there's different flow patterns. So different blood flow um, patterns that happen in the cortical and the basal ganglia in the brain. Um, The uh, the cortical area is responsible for your attention, your perception, your awareness, thought, memory, language, and consciousness. Whereas your basal ganglia is responsible for things like your motor control, your motor learning, so your voluntary movements, voluntary movements, let me stress that out. Um, And the other areas that are affected are your orbital gyrus and the head of the caudate nucleus. So... I haven't done much more um, research on this, to be quite frank with you. Um, but I can see just purely by watching, uh, sorry, by reading uh, these things, I kind of know what happens and what just by reading what the, these areas of the brain do. And unfortunately, they don't teach us that much of neurology in school of pharmacy, but it would have been more interesting um, um, to study more of it. Um, but yeah, this is my reply to people who say that, no, it can definitely not have a biological cause. Um, yes, it does. <laughs> um, another example is uh, Accutane. So I'm on Accutane right now, and it is partially responsible for why I feel so fucking depressed all the time. I've been on it for a couple months now, and obviously, I 
Accutane affects my liver, so I can't be taking. I mean, I can, but it's it's it was recommended um, by my local pharmacist that I don't take as much. Um, sorry, I don't take medication that is um, handled by my liver just in case anything happens and we don't want to put too much pressure on my liver. So I was like, okay, I'll just stop my current um, OCD medication and hopefully things I can handle it for the, um, the Accutane course, then I can start on it again. And a lot of shit has been going down ever since I stopped my OCD medication. So there's that. My OCD's become worse. My anxiety has risen up to the roof. And someone can still come to me and say, no, it is purely something that you've made up. I'm literally telling you, once I remove that physical element, that said physical element being the drug that affects me physically, and it works on receptors in my brain... um, yeah, no, it, you know, you removed it and now I feel worse. Is it a placebo effect? I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Fine, let's say it's a placebo effect, but I know it's not. Um, also, Accutane, why does it make you feel worse? Hmm, interesting that you asked me that, Mona. Um, because when I did a bit of research on Accutane, it says that it affects the orbitofrontal cortex. Guess what other condition affects your orbitofrontal cortex? depression ta-da mind blown (laughs) um i'm sorry if i sound like a complete bitch but i was very triggered and whenever i bring this this is the third time i'm recording this and every time i still get triggered um over this the second uh cause that i thought of was nurture and what i mean by nurture is social causes so things like your upbringing and the people that you deal with the environment you were raised in um these things severely affect you and that is very evident in borderline where whenever i search the cause a lot of um reading material that would come up would tie it back to trauma from childhood and like i said there was that study about um the mri study that was talking about the development um of your amygdala your hippocampus and or your orbital frontal cortex seem to be affected their development seem to be affected by events in your early childhood and other things like depression ptsd and anxiety and i think ocd i'm not sure because ocd is kind of different on its own um a lot of the ideology and the reading on the ideology seems to be something um that is mainly from a biological cause um but some people tend to uh, some people see it that it could be just a coping mechanism um but it's not ocd that i want to talk much about now when it comes to the nurture part it's your depression it's your borderline it's your um anxiety it's your ptsd and these things are not the same for everyone they get triggered by different events and they're caused by different events a lot of the time um you know some people have ptsd because they've been in a car accident you know um, a car crash um, and they're very afraid of getting into a car or even driving again people who have been raped and they 
don't feel comfortable. So, you know, if you're a woman and you've been ra- um, raped by a man, you tend to feel unsafe around men and vice versa. If you're a man who's been raped by a woman or even another man, you tend to feel afraid of that the of the that sex, uh, the sex of that vic- uh, of your perpetrator. And being bullied, being harassed, whether, you know, verbally being abused, again, verbally, emotionally, physically, um, sexually, being um, manipulated financially even. I have a personal um, story to tell, and it's the story of my mother. Um, My mom has had issues with being financially independent. Um... My uh, mom stayed in a very, very, very abusive marriage with a man who did not treat her as a partner, but rather as, let's just say something less. Um, I am tearing up a bit right now because it pains me to think that somebody would even treat any human being that way, let alone my own mother. Um and she went as i grew up i asked her you know once i as i grew up i i just never understood why she was it wasn't so easy for her to get a divorce and finally when i once i grew up a little bit she was like i didn't get a divorce because i didn't have money i didn't have a job i quit my job after i got married uh because i moved to a different city i my husband had more money than me i didn't have property or any savings to fall back on I wouldn't even end up with a place to live, Mona. I don't know anybody who would help me. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a reality, even for a lot of women. Not just even in the Middle East, but for a lot of people. And sometimes it's not even women, guys. Sometimes it's, it's men too. Regardless, I'm just saying that specific example, it was my mom. Um, and... At the time, Egyptian law, I don't think, um, provided a lot of advantages to single mothers. Um, you know, once you got divorced, and now, obviously, there's things like, there's there's more, um, I think, attention. I, I'm, I'm honestly, like, not um, a law expert, but my brother is, and he tells me a lot about these things. But now, you know, your husband is capable of providing you with um spousal support and child support and and a whole ass house for you to live in because you're the caretaker of his child but at the time that wasn't really a big thing and my mom still has fucking issues with um moving out of her place so now that she's getting older uh, my brother offered um that she Uh, comes to live with him and I told her the same thing I'm like if I ever end up with my own property I want you to live with me and she said no I'm never selling my my house I just paid my last down payment like last year um the last quarter of last year and she's like I'm not getting rid of this place because I am terrified of never having a place to go back to when everybody abandons me and it's such a real thing this woman that was not in her childhood. My mom had me when she was 35. <laughs> um, being in an abusive relationship and being scared and being manipulated emotionally and not having anything to fall back on is scary. And 
I'm just saying that is just an example of how you can end up being so traumatized from a certain event that it causes you to do things that other people might see like my brother I think in the beginning he was like why would you not want to live with me do you not love me like I was the same I was thinking the same thing I'm like why wouldn't you want to live with me I mean I live with you now and it's even just a discussion like I don't have my property yet why why are you so adamant on not even doing that even if it's just a discussion and it really shows the deep um wounds that trauma can have on you um and just how how it it can make you seem like you're making weird decisions and you have very weird opinions but it makes sense to you um i have something weird with like touch and intimacy so i don't like being um hugged uh as in like i don't want someone to initiate any type of touch or intimacy with me i like to be the one to initiate so i like hugging people i like hugging my mom i like kissing her i like that but i don't like it when somebody just ambushes me and it's purely because i was verbally uh, sorry i was um well i was verbally too uh but i was physically abused as a child but i also lacked emo- physical intimacy so i was both abused <laughs> physically but at this i had a very distorted uh version of what physical intimacy is and i'm not talking about sexual intimacy by the way because i know that word intimacy makes everyone like freak out but i mean that between like at between family and friends um i really struggled with that um up to this day i really like hugging people and i think it makes up for the fact that i didn't have that much um physical contact that um showed or or strengthened or emphasized the love that my parents had for me but at the same time I don't like it when it's um not initiated by me because it's a control thing I want to be the one in control um so it's a way of of getting the love and and compensating for the love that I didn't receive in you know in the form of um physical touch but I also don't want it to be something that is a surprise for me. I still flinch when somebody comes too close to me. Um, and it's been, yeah, 12 years since my dad passed away. Um, um, also having a parental absence. And, you know, those are just examples. I'm not trying to be, um, you know, giving my own sob story. I'm just saying... Things like that really do have an impact on you. Um, and they give rise to things like daddy issues and mommy issues. And um, a lot of the times even, I Abigail actually mentioned it in our one of our discussions. She mentioned that um, it's so difficult for people to not become their parents, to not become what they got used to. Um and it's sad. We, I think in the end, we kind of said like, almost like, guys, please don't have children before you're ready. Do not. Like, having a child is not a hobby. It's not um, 
something to keep you busy having children is not just a game like we're not toys because you know we grow up and we become adults like we are now and now we're fucked up adults and it's just not fair to say i want a child because i want to build a family that child is going to have their own life and they're going to affect people and if you think that having a child is purely something that has to do with you and it doesn't it's not really going to make a difference if you think that having one more life on this world is not going to make a difference think of fucking hitler man that was one person who ruined and fucked up lives for a lot of people for many years up until now sorry i mean until now you know think of like dictators think of like people who have caused genocides things that were racist movements these things a lot of the time were started by like one person who spread their idea think about i know abusers rapists one person can fuck up someone's life and it's like a fucking domino effect that hurt people hurt people so please don't fucking have children a when you're not ready and b if you really know if you if you know for a fact that you are not a fit parent actually i think those two points are pretty much the same they have in in essence they're quite the same aren't they um but yeah don't just don't have children when you're when you know that you still have issues to resolve with yourself and i think my dad failed at that point i think my own dad had daddy issues and he just he had issues with his dad and then he just had children and he passed those daddy issues onto his two girls and i will talk about daddy issues at one point and how i'm fucking sick of why people just love to sexualize it um and it's not something that should be sexualized in my opinion um it really is a fucking issue and it sucks (laughs) um and mommy issues is a real thing too just saying But to wrap this up, I'm finally going to say my uh, last cause that um, Abigail and I got into a lot, which is, could depression, uh, sorry, could mental illness just be a first world problem? Is it something that is made up by people in the first world, highly privileged people to kind of add a bit more flavor, another dimension to their um privileged persona to say i'm depressed i'm this to something a little bit of drama basically to keep life flavorful and you know add more dimension to your character i guess um i get it um i know that a lot of the times people when they argue that mental illness doesn't exist is that they say well you know, I think, or or that it is a first world problem is that it's more reported in first world countries. Um, depression is, is very high in first world countries and that people in poor countries are the happiest, although they don't have much food, they don't have much clothing, they don't have a lot of water, they don't have shelter, blah, 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 blah. Um, and all I say is I constantly think of um this tv show called i may destroy you um it's starring michaela cole i really recommend watching it it's a really nice show and it's very raw 
um and it it just portrays things how they happen it's not dramatized um it's just very emotional and raw and she in in an episode it basically talks about this woman who gets roofied and she um she knows that she got sex like raped or sexually assaulted but she can't really remember exactly what happened and that whole thing drives her crazy she can't even remember what the guy looks like and she starts freaking out and then she goes to therapy and she starts talking to her therapist and she says um i start thinking about what happened and how i felt and how disgusting i felt afterwards and how um like why this happened to me and but then i remember that i there are there are children dying in syria there are families crossing oceans just barely trying to live and people who are dying of hunger and i'm just here saying oh i feel bad because i got roofied at a club and that's basically what she's saying um and i really related to that and i was like yeah, I mean, I guess I can relate to that. I'm here complaining, well, not complaining, but really wallowing in self-pity and in very, um, in a very terrible state of mind when I have a roof over my head and a bed to even cry on. Whereas some people don't even have, they can't even afford that luxury to have shelter, to have food. Um... I know a lot of times we think that we are average people, but, you know, the people we see on Instagram or on Facebook or on whatever social media um, platform there is, but it's because, like, the majority of the world is poor, guys. They just don't have iPhones and smartphones and platforms to sit around and say, hey, we're poor, because they're too busy being poor. I think we're very, very privileged. We don't have to be Jeff Bezos to be privileged i think we're very privileged to have food shelter and you know the our basic needs met um but it also brings me to the fact that whenever i think that way i say okay i am very thankful for what i have but at the same time i don't feel like these emotions go away I don't. I don't feel like my emotions go away. I I get more grateful because a lot of times I will admit sometimes I get ungrateful. Like I forget to be grateful. I wouldn't say ungrateful, but I I forget to be grateful. And you know, even God says in the Quran that like if you try to count God's blessings over you, you would not be able to. Um and I even thank God for that. You know, I thank God for everything that I have. And sometimes it's really little things. It's like having clothes, you know, having, um, you know, hygiene standards. It's really basic things like that. Having clean food, ha- being able to go into a shower with clean water, being able to um, not feel cold and not sleep on the streets, you know, it's very basic things like that, that we really do take for granted, and it does help you put things into context, I'm not gonna lie, it really does help you get, put things into context once you start thinking that, okay, maybe life isn't so bad, but I, 
I feel like that only works for a bit and then those feelings start to come up again and they don't go away. And then I try, I try saying, okay, Mona, come on, think, you, you, you're you grateful, you should be grateful for all of this. And I say, God, I am grateful, but at the same time, I feel so terrible. And I, I think once you surround yourself by people that, especially here in this um, society, and especially my own family <laughs> society thing, it's very easy to say, you should be grateful that you have this, you should be grateful to have this, and Abigail actually agreed with me about this, that, like, she said that, like, you know, having African parents is kind of the same thing, like, you should be thankful that you have food, that you have a roof over your head, and, but at the same time, again, we, we also both agreed that those feelings at the end of the day are real, and they don't go away, And that saying, I am in pain, I am hurt, does not mean I'm not grateful. Um, I brought up um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, If you want to go Google it, honestly, Google it on Google Images. It's a simple diagram. Um, It's a triangle with five um, compartments, five, um, and each compartment represents a stage. So it's five stages, and... Maslow's hierarchy of needs basically talks about um, um, humans' needs, um, really. It talks about, um, you know, the... Jesus, I don't know what happened to me. I feel like I just stopped talking after I started talking about um, that because it really just did get to me. I'm sorry if I do get emotional. Well, okay, I'm not going to apologize, but... I, for, um, pardon me, I guess, for not um, trying to remain completely unemotional, or, although I did try. But um, he talks about saying that, you know, we cannot reach, so the, the need, the, the, the needs at the top cannot be met unless you meet the, the, the most basic needs. So one cannot even start thinking about having self-esteem and recognition and strength and all that before they um, have their physiological needs met. You can't move to the next stage without fulfilling that one below. Um, so I think for first world uh, countries, you have most of the time, obviously not all the time but for most people you have physiological needs and safety needs are met um and that's where individuals start looking for love and belonging for esteem and for self-actualization um i think that because with these societies the physiological needs are not met so i'm talking this time about poor poor people poor uh communities poor societies people that really are in abject poverty they don't have time to start thinking about oh my dad doesn't love me much um and here i'm 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 generalizing according to maslow's theory by the way um i'm not saying that people are not devoid of emotion and basic human needs because they are poor but sometimes you know if i'm hungry i'm i'm really focused on finding food to eat before i start thinking about you know, my daddy issues, (laughs) you know what I mean, um, 
So that's basically what I mean. I I personally believe in that. But I, I do obviously acknowledge that a lot of us do want love and belonging and we do think about it and we're not devoid of emotion. Just because you are poor doesn't mean that you don't want, you're not striving for recognition or strength or freedom. But when you are in abject poverty, these things um, occupy a larger part of your brain than other needs, if that's what I'm trying to say. And I'm hoping I'm not offending anybody um, I am generalizing with most of these and I try not to, but it's for the purpose of conveying that concept or that my opinion in a way where I try not to <laughs> offend anybody. So I do apologize if I ignorantly am offending somebody. Um, so yeah, that's what I mean. I think when our families... Um, Abigail and I had agreed that, yeah, when I think our, our families are um, stuck at, they've met their safety needs. I think they already had, so like my mom and my dad's generation, I think they had their physiological needs met. So they were striving for their safety needs. They wanted that employment, the personal security, having property, um was very important for them and so they managed to get from stage one to stage two and finally stay stay at stage two they didn't really think much about the love and belonging part in my opinion based on my own family experience i think that's what happened um and to them love and belonging just meant having children and having a big family um to surround you once you're in your old age i think that was it for them um, whereas I think my generation, we're more, we've passed the physiological needs, we've passed the safety needs, because I think a lot of us have better education than our parents do, and granted the government might not be great, but I think the government gives us more benefits, um, not like financially, but it gives us access to more resources than it did for them. Um, in terms of education, in terms of scholarships, in terms of, you know, support, and it doesn't have to be financial support, but just plain support. I think we even have the internet, which is, it can be a great um, source of education for a lot of, for a lot of us. And I, my, our family did not have that. So I think we have the physiological and the safety needs. And now we're looking for the love and belonging. And then we realize that we don't have them. We realize that we don't have a sense of connection to life, to people, to people who we are close to, you know, our families. We find that we lacked intimacy, that we don't even know what intimacy is, that we um sometimes struggle with friendships and actually i feel like friendships are kind of our salvation in a way when it comes to the love and belonging part um and now we're just looking into the esteem and self-actualization and because i think again this is my familial um uh story i think that because my mom is stuck at safety needs and that's it for her I think to even talk to her about like, oh, I want to achieve my esteem and my self-actualization. And by the way, the words that I'm saying here are from Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you just Google 
Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you'll you'll be able to follow <laughs> what I'm saying. Um, it just gives you a guide to be able to follow what I'm saying. And if I start talking to my mom about like, I want to travel the world and I want to do something for humanity, I don't think she will even grasp what I'm trying to say. It's not because my mom is stupid or it's not because my mom is not educated. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying it's purely perspective and differences in um, life experience. My mom's life experiences were very different than mine. Um, She grew up in the countryside where, you know, life was just more simple. And I grew up in, in a city, a very big city, and with very different with a very different background a completely different um set of scenery um so just because our parents don't get us it doesn't mean that they're stupid or that we know more it's just that in my opinion this is all my opinion (laughs) i just don't think that the needs that we were born with are um are the same that we automatically jump on the love and belonging needs whereas they were already trying to jump onto the safety needs first um and with another thing was for with first world problems i think one thing that sometimes i i just have to you know not me but we just have to admit is that first world countries do generally they are generally more advanced in the um science fields and the the medical field than we are yeah we make um a lot of um discoveries and things like that but most of the time first world countries know a lot more than we do (laughs) um and it it is no surprise that they recognize mental illness now as something that is worthy of speaking about even though a lot of them do um neglect it you know based on my experience in the UK but they're still evolving a lot more than a lot of us um and us I mean my own country I don't know what mental illness is like in a lot of countries you know there could be a poor country somewhere that um, acknowledges mental illness a lot more. I am actually very sorry. I do take that back because that was an ignorant comment to make. But if I just compare Egypt to um, Europe in terms of how it looks at mental illness or, or, or certain parts of Europe, I'm just going to say, uh, not yet. I, I, these people acknowledge mental illness and here we are thinking about other things. It's because there's just a difference in the level of research that has been done on things they do more research on this and we don't we're still doing research on other things and you know it's it's just a whole different story now i'm just starting to blab and i'm trying to avoid that with every single episode but here i am doing it again (laughs) um uh so i think it's 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 not um a first world problem basically that's all i'm trying to say um we i say we um but yeah i'm trying to say like to go over what abigail and i discussed because i really do feel bad that we that episode just had such shitty audio that i couldn't upload it um 
but we agreed it's just not a first world problem it's just that the first world has a, a a bigger platform because more people listen to first world countries um than they do with poorer countries and a lot of time in third world countries we're too busy staying alive man that you know sometimes we don't even have time to even treat physical diseases let alone start you know physical diseases that are i'm not you know making fun of mental illness god i mean this whole thing is about mental illness but that things that are even detrimental and that we believe in some people don't even have time for that because they're too busy trying to feed their children um and here you it's just you know you fend for yourself you know we don't have um reliable um police we don't have reliable a reliable government we don't have a reliable health insurance you have to work for everything that you got um it doesn't get simply handed over to you or you don't you don't get you know benefits or anything from um the government here so you just really have to try so hard and i think people are so busy just trying to stay alive here and keep their family alive and feed their children that they re- and even feed themselves they don't have time to even think about issues that they have and i'm i'm talking generally i i know that there are very very rich people here in egypt and in any poor country there are there is that elite i again i am generalizing um based on what i've seen and based on interviews and based on talks that i've had with people who do live in abject poverty um so yeah this is um this was quite an interesting talk i do want to say um one other thing that really inspired me that abigail said uh yesterday was that about that grateful thing that i talked about um she said that a good way to talk to to shift um the the perspective that you have about well if if i'm thinking about these emotions then i must be ungrateful is to say actually i am very god i'm i am very grateful that i am privileged enough to have time to sit down with myself and have self-awareness and acknowledge my own emotions and ab- able to have the resources and the time to and even the knowledge to be able to seek help and recognize what is wrong with me and how i can fix it um so that was just a a good way to spin the narrative in my opinion um and it was purely abigail's um opinion by the way i and i admired that it's just something that stuck with me since yesterday and i thought it was um worth noting um and i'm just going to end this episode on here um I still haven't fixed my ums, but we'll try. I am recording this again uh and I'm currently ill. Um that's why I kept coughing a little bit or my voice sounds quite um hoarse. Yeah, it's probably because um I think I'm falling ill because I've been in bed for the past couple of days. Um but you know that doesn't relate to anybody so i'm just going to stop here and thank you for listening so far and i'm sorry um about promising that i was going to upload um 
the week before last week and the week before that and then actually uploading this week um but thank you for bearing with me and have a good evening and look i guess follow my episode follow my podcast and share it and if you like this episode please share it with whomever you can and you know tell me like follow i follow us follow me on instagram and just tell me what you think all right um i hope everyone has a good evening and that you enjoyed this episode and hopefully gave you a bit of perspective to think on mental illness and thank you for the third time uh goodbye